0: Rain has left the station, you know, and and I don't think we're going to stop this. Three rules. Number one, all disease changes with time. The person who sees them on the third ship and the person that sees them on the first ship didn't see the same human. Rick, it's good to see you again. We're now in... 2017
1: <laughs> it's terrific yes we survived we survived and yeah. we are together we are i'm looking into your beady little eyes because you have been invited been invited to talk to the residents at usc tomorrow on the medical legal issues so obviously they know nothing about risk management <laughs> monthly <laughs> and they flew you in to give them one hour so it we would have them twenty five. it would
0: have been cheaper for them just to sign every up Everybody up for Risk Management Monthly. You know, I'm going to bring that up tomorrow, <laughs> you <know> idiots. That. <laughs> Why would they do something like that? By the way, Rick, while we're doing the, uh, the January issue, we finished a year of doing a lot of presentations for PAs and NPs, advanced practice providers. Wait a minute.
1: Can we stop there? Yeah. I don't know. Are they called it? I prefer personally advanced practice clinician nobody wants to be called a provider well i I
0: don't know this thing goes back and forth i mean this is this has got more iterations than the gender question and but i would just like to say that the program we did in uh, december in las vegas we had damn near 800 people and it was really very very good i think I think this is the way of the future for a lot of these programs.
1: Well, I must admit, I was very gratified. Uh, There were, yeah, it was more like 725, 735, but. who's counting i'm sure you are at least it wasn't 300 you know right 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 and then oh god 300 i i I rock back and forth you know sweating out the numbers here i really do every time god knows how many we're going we had one course i don't know if you remember this we had 1100 people yes so we're planning on a course for three or four hundred people at the most kind of thing and these registrations it's like it came out of the woodwork and fortunately yeah. one of the r- nice reasons about we go to Las Vegas is there's these hotels are so enormous that uh, they wound up putting us in their convention center um uh for that for that meeting but yeah. in any case enough there's enough, a reason I brought this up and Oh yeah and, is there a re- I thought you were just doing it to brag about <laughs> no, how great no, we no, did no no
0: no i'm i'm going to say that I never have as many people who want to talk to me after the presentations as when we do the medical legal uh, topics at this program. They stand in line and they've got questions uh, and there's a real interest out there and... A genuine
1: fear that they're going to screw up, well, have you considered that during your lecture you didn't make yourself clearer or you know, and that's why you're coming up there? What well, did you mean by that doctor you know it's, it's that's another reason they come up asking questions they could be they don't ask any questions after my lecture yeah, well, know?
0: and for good reason i mean they they they've already they know the quality of what they're going to get all right it's january it's two thousand and seventeen and we've got to do a
1: risk management monthly. Rick, start out with mailbag. Okay, uh, listen, I should tell you that Greg's a little under the weather here. Periodically, you'll be hearing a wheeze. Do you have your little squirter here? I don't Doctor? have the no? squirter. Okay, no, so he'll be wheezing periodically throughout this. Uh, we, we do have a diagnosis of reactive airway due to some virus that he brought in from um, Detroit that we're not interested in, in, in spreading around here. So let's move on here. Right. The first one. Back in May, a long-time listener, Roger Purry, wrote in asking a a series of questions regarding uh, naloxone prescribing. Uh, We'd briefly like to review those questions because there's a lot of chatter on the internet about this business and the fact that illicit use of opiates is apparently getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And And I I always feel compelled to say, and we're not the problem. Well,
0: I, I I know you want to say that, but uh, we're you're right. We're we're two percent or three percent. But let's buy, let's own our two or three percent. Have 3% you ever prescribed and
1: OxyContin in your entire life? No, I have not. Okay, actually. Yeah, thank yes, you very much. It, all right, but there's
0: but these questions are good. Um, first, are we obligated to prescribe naloxone when we write a script for opiates, uh, or when you send an opiate overdose home? or for those patients on chronic opiates. What do you think, Rick? I mean, I'm... No, to all of the above. All of the above. I, you know, I in Absolutely anticipation not. of this discussion, I spoke to three or four other folks who do a fair amount of medical legal work. They have not seen a case of this. That's not to say it couldn't happen. But at a certain point in time, every time you write somebody for... Um, a couple of... of uh, Percocets. Percocets. Here's uh, your naloxone. Are you going to give them a naloxone pan? This is a standard pen? of
1: care issue. Nobody does this. Nobody does this. Therefore, it's not an issue. Um, what are the medical legal ramifications of prescribing or not prescribing naloxone? I mean, are there any... I guess when you prescribe it, uh, it's like any other drug and it needs to have indications and... People have to be aware of the uh, of the effects. There have been these, some people who have gone absolutely bonkers because they got a lot of naloxone and not a lot of narcotics, and they basically went in through withdrawals and had a really bad time. And I've heard of cases where um, people were very, very upset. Yes. And that, a lot yes. of people now kind of titrate. This, we'll, we'll take it this to the point where you're breathing, and then you can wake up. I I think there are some potential medical
0: traps. Let's talk about them. Uh, Mother brings in her 16-year-old boy. He's overdosed. She said he's done it a few times. Is there anything I can do? I am perfectly willing to have that shared decision-making conversation with the mother about getting that material, keeping it at home, because I think the family wants to do something for their child. And I certainly don't see that as a medical legal problem. I mean, nobody gets high on, on uh, Narcan, Rick. Uh, so I, I don't see that as a problem. The second, the second sort of potential trap here is if they, here's the danger if they believe by giving somebody one hit of Narcan, they've saved them. That's just wrong. You and I have seen plenty of people who've woken up become quite belligerent and unhappy. And 10 minutes later, we're under again. Now, all of the newer opiates, these things, the elephant tranquilizers that are 50 and 100 and somebody said a thousand times as potent per milligram um, as, as the standard opiates, I don't want somebody going home thinking you just give them a shot and then they don't need medical care. So if you're going to instruct a family of or a person with the use of this material, please uh, tell them to get medical help, to summon medical help, because things can
1: go wrong and I don't want to see us trapped in something like that. Well, that's the third question. How do you educate patients and families regarding how to use naloxone? Uh, it's you know there's got to be something on youtube about how to do that you can't be going through this long spiel every time except to say oh there are oh there's 20 there's 20
0: videos on this all you got to do is put up uh you know home use naloxone and there it is it's it's like uh it's like the cunningham technique for reducing a shoulder you can watch countless videos on this
1: is that Ricky Cunningham?
0: That's wrong. It's not Richie Cunningham. No, it's
1: not. Okay. The reason I wanted to review these questions is that uh, they were submitted by Dr. Perry. And um, he's been a listener for a long time. And sadly, I'd like to acknowledge that uh, Roger died this past November due to a so- stroke associated with pancreatic cancer. Um, there was a long obituary written about him. And yes. This man has accomplished... A tremendous amount—forty years of practice, two hundred thousand patients—and unlike you and me, Greg, Roger completed over twenty marathons, starting at the age of fifty-five. So we got a—we got a lot to catching up to <laughs> oh, do. No, no, <laughs> no. Listen, I—I I am absolutely
0: blown over by the quality of our listeners and all the things that they're into. And well you um, and I have no life it's clear. We, we, we have no life. these people do lots of other things the uh, the romans the Roman would say, uh, sit tibi terra may the ground rest lightly on his soul okay, moving on Greg. you, got, you have the next
1: case here, yeah,
0: um, <laughs> not only this is another long time listener. our next writer. Uh, who wrote to us, wishes to remain anonymous. And after you hear this discussion, you understand why. Now, again, I've had uh, interactions with this person. They've they've done a lot of things in their hospital to try and get this taken care of. But it focuses on one of our favorite gripes, which is the requirement of EPs to sign charts of APCs when they work together. Now, I understand if they're going to charge the 100% of the fee, the physician should make a note, see the patient, at least have consultation about the problem, sign the chart. No problem with that. But in cases where the physician never sees the patient, and they just stacked up charts for him to
1: sign. I don't understand that. Well, they're not billing it 100%. This is a matter of what's called supervision. Right. I'm going to supervise your care by, technically speaking, you have to review a certain percentage of their cases. So these guys are not reviewing a certain percentage. They're reviewing pretty much every case at the end of the shift. But the fact is, how can you review a case when you're looking at their note? It's kind of like garbage in, garbage out kind exactly. of thing. You know, if they've made a mistake, they have made a chart that defends that mistake. Um, so well, the there's is, is: liability here. Are you, really, are you really putting your name on the bottom of something that, in fact, you've not seen the patient, you've not independently verified any of the facts on, in the chart, and what does your name mean? So, I think that is the issue. It, I, I don't think these people are doing this fraudulent billing now. No, I
0: I would hope that they're not fraudulently billing, but uh, the situation is not totally resolved as to what that signature means. And by the way, whenever I see a case come across uh, my desk, which has to do with either a PA or an NP, uh, and the physician was there working at that time, both names are involved on the lawsuit, Rick.
1: Oh, yeah. There's, that's the supervising physician. That's the
0: supervising physician. And so um, I know of plenty of places which have now gone to saying, <clears throat> we're going to charge the 85%. We don't even want your name on the chart. And as far as I'm concerned, that's perfectly fair. The director of the department provides some sort of distant supervision by Reviewing a certain number of cases. But to think that's the same as we do with a resident, go in and see the case, talk about the case, look at what's being done, it's not the same thing. And we shouldn't believe it is. And quite frankly,
1: I have no idea why your name ought to be on that chart. Well, that's the whole point. We don't know. We don't know. But people don't like putting their names on charts of patients they've never seen with some implied supervision that really never happened. Now the, now this gets worse. His hospital is saying, "Well, you know, I think we can staff the uh, place with um, what's it urgent care I think related. Right. We don't need all doctor time. We can have 8 hours of doctor time and have the last 4 hours of the shift staffed solely by a nurse practitioner. Oh, and by the way, we want you to sign all those charts as well." Right. Exactly. So th- th- this doctor's not even in the building and they want those charts signed which is taking it one additional step which is you know I don't blame this guy and the, so the issue is well where's the regulations that say I have to do that I don't want to do it so show me in medical staff bylaws something or show me where I got I have to do that
0: well the other the big part of this problem too is that if the PAs and P's are employed by the hospital They're not the direct employee of the doctor. Right. They're employed by the hospital. Is this just a way of involving the doctor's malpractice policy if anything goes wrong on any case? And I think the smart doc is going (laughs) to at least raise a few of those questions. Well, that's why this guy
1: wrote this question. Yeah. No, no. I would like to see um, the justification... For you to ask me to put my name on this chart when I never saw the patient, uh, well, first of all, if they're nurse practitioners, technically you don't need to do that. However, depends on the state how how the state practice act is written. Well, well, independent of that, a hospital has the right to say. I know you legally don't have to have a doctor supervising you, but in this ER, you do. Yes, of course, just they like do that. the PAS, you're. You're going to be under the same level of supervision. Right, exactly. All right, let's move on here to, uh, let's see here. Oh, you've got one from Tim Davey. There is
0: a question from Tim Davey. He's the Associate Program Director at Maricopa Medical Center um, and the big residency in emergency medicine. He has a medical question regarding a comment which one of us made. <laughs> on a prior yeah, well, not recording. one of us
1: not one of his chief <laughs> okay you made it
0: he asserts that i said that an mri can be falsely normal for up to 12 hours in a stroke uh dr davy um uh knowing the extent of our medical knowledge and the fact that we read a lot
1: of other stuff says give me some references <laughs> you're not reading my notes properly Knowing the limited extent of my medical knowledge, he wants some references. <laughs> yes,
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: know, not that no, he no. doesn't trust. I, you we're at going
0: all. to do it. We're going to be kind. Um, yes, I think everyone should understand that when when I do stroke cases these days, it's either a CT scan or uh, an MRI. There is a period of time where the exam is absolutely positive for neurologic deficit, and the CT scan may be negative for 24 hours. The MRI is better, but at least up to 12 hours in some studies, it doesn't develop uh, so that you actually see a difference on the scan. So rule of thumb is, if the patient has a stroke by examination, the only reason you got a CT was to see if there was blood. If you're of that ilk that thinks it's an anterior circulation stroke, which happened within three hours, and you're willing, you want to talk to the family about the use of TPA or four and a half hours, or, d- depending on who you believe. But whatever, whichever one it is, and, you, and I think you do have to have that informed discussion with families. I mean, obviously, you will bend them one direction or the other. But never, ever say that the CT scan being normal or the MRI being normal uh, early on means they haven't had a stroke.
1: Well, you have to admit, though, that um, a lot of these are going to be very subtle. Because you're going to, to have, you're not going to have a full-blown left hemiparesis, and have these things being normal in the vast majority of cases. Well, so it's going to be a much more subtle, subtle case. Subtle cases, but again, within the first few
0: hours, was which, which is when we're really talking about seeing a lot of these patients.
1: They do not have to be positive, and we should just understand that. Well, we have some literature here to defend your <laughs> assertions uh, unfortunately it appears that Dr. Davy is not a subscriber to emergency medical abstracts <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting chest pain Edith uh, because if he were Dr. Davy, if you are please let us know and uh, I'll apologize and grovel but a search of our database of over 15,000 papers Asking that question would have found right off the t- top right. of my head too. Right. So we're going to talk about two papers right. that are, that address your your um, assertion. The first is entitled "False Negative Diffusion-Weighted Imaging in Acute Stroke and Its Frequency in Anterior and Posterior Circulation Ischemia." This thing hits a, hits the issue right on the head. Right, right. This is what he's talking about here. Okay.
0: This is the this is in, uh, the Journal of uh, Assisted Tomography. Uh, this is back in 2014, and the bottom line was diffusion weighted MRIs are falsely negative, were falsely negative in six of 94 patients with anterior circulation strokes, and five, that's a quarter, of 22 patients with posterior circulation strokes. And what it really means is you can't use that
1: as the definitive yes or no, they've had a stroke early on in the situation. Well, they talk about the times. Um, The mean time between onset of symptoms and MRI was 4.3 hours in patients with false negative results. Yep. And about 11 hours in patients with true positives. So uh, obviously, the longer you wait, the more likely the pathology is going to be there. Right. And
0: uh, again, to reiterate... There is no evidence that posterior fossa strokes, cerebellar strokes, small lesions, the striate... striate Don't get into anatomy crap. None of that has ever been tested in any of the studies. So anyone who says that the TPA is good for that, um, maybe they've got a different literature base than we have, Rick, but the only two positive studies... Um, uh, ECAS-3 and the NINS trial which are weakly positive they excluded other types of stroke other than middle cerebral or uh,
1: artery or carotid vessels well let me briefly do the second paper it's entitled small strokes causing severe vertigo frequency of false negative MRIs and non lacunar mechanisms this was uh, in neurology Uh, July 8, 2014. This paper says the median time from symptom onset until MRI was 12 hours. This obviously was not done in the United States of America. Uh, From 6 to 48 hours after symptom onset, the false negative rate was 53%. Now, we're talking about small strokes, small strokes and non-lacunar mechanisms. And larger strokes... It was 8%. So this kind of is consistent with the other paper that says, you have a decent-sized stroke. This is not going to be... The, the MRI is generally going... In the, in the vast majority of the cases going to be uh, abnormal. But you have to be careful how quickly it's being obtained after the symptoms, just as you have so lucidly explained. All right. Now, I,
0: I, I hope that he is... a I really do hope he is a listener... But I don't think that any of this is a secret. Even when you're dealing with the neurologists in your community, if they're honest, they will tell you about the limitations of our, of our studies. And you've got to know what you're, what you're looking for when you send that patient over for an examination. Um,
1: let's see here. The last email we have for this month is from a longtime listener. Uh, catch this. He writes that he loves the program and, quote, in his opinion, pound for pound, it's probably one of the best educational programs around, end quote. Very good. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So our listener asks, what do you think should be appropriate documentation when you are discharging a signed out patient who has been boarded in the ED for a bunch of hours and signed out across multiple shifts? In whom the original E D H and P is not yet complete and signed into the record. So let me summarize that. Can I just restate that in yeah, English in, in something <laughs> we can understand, right? So they got a patient is in the ER, and there multiple, and they're there a long time. And multiple doctors are basically taking over the care. And one goes away, and new comes on. And one goes away, and new comes on. And this doctor is concerned that somewhere in that record. Is a recommendation for a test or a treatment or a disposition that 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 doctor is not aware of because this record has not been transcribed or something to that effect, and so he wants to know about writing a cover your butt note that says, "I haven't seen any of these other recommendations," um, and therefore, and somehow I'm I'm absolved, which I don't really think that's the issue, Greg. What is the issue? Three here? rules. Number one, all disease changes with time.
0: The person who sees them on the third shift and the person that sees them on the first shift didn't see the same human. Things get better, things get worse. And let me tell you the patients who this involves. It's always problematic people. Psych patients stay there a long time. And it's often people who who have also... They may have touched a small amount of alcohol. Uh, There may be another drug involved. And so to think that the first examination, the second examination, and the third examination are going to be the same when you're full of chemicals is absolutely wrong. No, he's not
1: asserting that. He's afraid that somewhere hidden in that record is some kind of recommendation, dispositional advice, some suggested test that never got done, and he doesn't know about it, so that he's going to be torpedoed by one of his colleagues who writes a record, makes a note that is putting this guy in a box. Then what he needs to do is have better sign-out rounds
0: Yes, exactly. W- with That's his the people so that you, the, you're at least on the same page. Rick, I can't tell you how many of these cases I've done over the years where, again, the, the, the quick quip, uh, just check this, when he, oh, when, yeah. he, when he dries out, he'll be fine. No, I've looked at this The
1: these, subdural will, will be more apparent the, than when he right. dries out. Yes,
0: yeah, let, let that guy who's drunk sleep it off. And, of course, that's why we move from having drunk tanks to have the police bring people to the emergency departments, because it's tough to sleep off a subdural. But I'll tell you, if I made a list... Of all the injuries I found when those people really woke up, it, it's incredible. Broken wrists, broken ribs, uh, infections, people who are both drunk and diabetic and in ketoacidosis, a lot of these things do happen. And, and here, here's my advice. The last doc is the one who has the perspective of what's happened. He's got to then make a decision, summarize it. This is what I see. This is what we need to do now. Patient got a lot better, a lot faster. I mean, a lot of us would argue as to whether a test needs to be done or not done. But the last guy to touch them is going to be the first guy to go to the stand
1: uh, in court. (laughs) I promise you that. The disposition of that patient is ultimately the responsibility of the last doctor. The last doc, absolutely. And it frankly doesn't matter what any of his prior colleagues said about what they should do or shouldn't do. It's the last doctor's job to make the des- de- uh, de- um, disp- deposition or disposition? Disposition. A disposition, thank you very much. Yeah, deposition <laughs> is what he gives when he's screwed up, Rick. You know, one of the things that was nice about this doctor is he acknowledges that this is really all about. That are, therefore, these pass-ons, and he has devised his own pass-on policy, which I have uh, taken the liberty of writing down here. Um, yes, yeah, we'll go through some of that. That's actually pretty good stuff. Um, he documents what the verbalized sign-out plan is with his co- that his colleague yeah. talked to him about, the time of the sign-out, the time of the patient's arrival to the ED. The studies that were done, the meds that were given, the most recent vitals, the course assessment, and plan and disposition, all in his sign-out note, which is pretty pretty thorough and it'd be hard to screw something up. The other thing is, he says, I actually go to the patient's bedside, now don't let that get around, (laughs) (laughs) for a final check and an interview with the patient, and writes the discharge instructions himself. And right. the idea of writing the discharge instructions yourself... No, is that, re-examining
0: you ever... the patient. I i can't tell you how many times you see a pretty decent initial history and physical. And then nothing. They're there for four yes, hours, yes, yes, five yes, yes, hours, yes. six hours. What the heck Put... transpired during this piece of... Exactly. <laughs> what What are they doing uh, during this period of time? What did the first act think was wrong? What do you think is wrong... But, uh, but I'll say it again, the people who get short-shafted on this are uh, drug addicts uh, and, and people who have psychiatric diagnoses, and what we do is we anchor bias ourselves. As soon as we see on the chart schizophrenic, this, that, or another thing, then every problem becomes a shrink problem. Uh, and the truth is most people don't die from shrink problems They die from medical problems.
1: Yes, that's true, Gregory. Uh, Now, I also wanted to note that the JC, as we call it now...
0: Yes, the (laughs) JC, right.
1: ...has a burr up its butt about this pass-on business. And uh, they're very concerned that inadequate pass-ons are a major patient safety issue. Well, you know, maybe that's true. I don't know. That wasn't my... Experience, but I think we did good pass-ons. JC, JC may be right about that.
0: Then they ought to publish about that, because as I'm aware, I I don't remember that the emergency medicine literature has a lot of stuff that shows that this is necessarily unsafe. I I would intuit that, but I'm not sure they've actually proven
1: reviewed these 2,000 malpractice cases. Is are pass ons truly an issue? Yes. Yeah, they, they are an
0: issue, but it's not the only issue we've got going on here. Why the Joint Commission now feels this is big, but at, at least the kind of suggestions we've been giving, I think, kind of help the thing out. They have mnemonics, they have all kinds of things for this now.
1: Yeah, I saw this thing, on, uh there's one of them called S-Bar. Yes. And then there's another one called I-Pass. <laughs> and to tell you the truth, what they stand for is harder to understand than than this figuring this out on your own. <laughs> yes, you know, I what know. The, you know. it's like situational awareness. What does that mean, Gregory? Contingency you know? planning. <laughs> uh, action list. Yeah. Synthesis. No, thank you. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, re- I remember all those things as as well. But so, um, what's our <laughs> final recommendation here? Yeah. So this guy wants to write. You no. Know, which should I write something in the record? The best thing he can do, reassess
0: the patient, examine the problem for which they came in for to see whether it's getting better, have set up an airtight follow-up system. You can't stop an odd comment being somewhere in someone else's note. But you can put a note on there that shows at the moment that you discharge the patient, the reasonable doctor would discharge the patient. I mean, you can always invent a scenario where someone goes home and dies. Uh, that doesn't mean, on that basis, we wouldn't send anybody home. We, we can't function like that. But if you've done a decent exam and documented it, you're way ahead of everybody else in the country. I'll, I'll tell you that now.
1: Well, my two cents is don't say anything about the immediate prior record in, in your note. Don't do that. And uh, hopefully your colleagues are smart enough not to put anything in the record that will put you in a box of uh, things that they think you should have done but you didn't do, and now look what happened, doctor.
0: Again, uh, with all the years of doing this, it's not doing the discharge examination and writing a decent note about what the plan is. That, That will save you almost every time.
1: Uh, Listen, uh,
0: do you want to do a a case or two? Yes, we could do that. I I want to hit a couple of other issues first. One of those is malpractice and the uh, states of the United States and, and decisions made. Again, I go back to my home state of Michigan. A very, very good decision came down for us about determining the admissibility of expert testimony in medical malpractice actions, not just emergency medicines, but all of them. They say you have to take care, you have to look at all the factors uh, which may be relevant in the case. However, an expert's background and experience alone are not sufficient to render the expert's opinion reliable and admissible. What they basically said was, this is a case in Eiler Miss uh, Misra. Uh, they said, the doctor who testified said basically, well, I've been practicing for years and I've had these things come into my office. He was not board certified in the specialty that was on trial. And basically the Supreme Court said, uh-uh. Just having run an office, just having seen a bunch of patients is not the same as having a level of expertise in the field. And I think this is good for us because so many people in the past have tried to testify that they knew what emergency physicians did. They hung around with them all the time. I even had an internist who actually said from the stand, well, I'm down there all the time helping the boys out. Uh, You know, what a paternalistic pile of crap he was, as if he knew better than emergency doctors what should have been done in the case. Well, what
1: state was this? Michigan. Well, you know, that's kind of like behind the times, because in California for the last century... You needed an emergency physician to testify on behalf of or against an emergency physician. Rick, we're, we're certified. Thank you very much.
0: We, we can only breathe the air in Michigan four months of the year. Remember that. It's too cold the rest of the time. You know, we're behind. We're slow. But this is a good thing. Now, um, we, and we talked about this, I, I believe, a couple of months ago. But again, the Michigan Court of Appeals reaffirmed the idea that the hospital cannot be vicariously liable for malpractice of an on-call physician. Just because you're on the call list and you screw up, that doesn't mean the hospital screwed up. The doctor could still be held liable for what he or she did, but they can't uh, intuit from that that since the hospital makes up the call list... you got to always go after hosp- the hospital. Well, <laughs> this was a good finding, again, uh, for, for doctors in general. And the reason why it was a good finding, Rick, was because doctors will tell you, oh, I don't want to be on that call list because, you know, it, it, it gets me in trouble, it does this or that. And the hospital, of course, would love to cover its liability... With other people's malpractice insurance policies, so this actually is, is is good in general for medicine, and I'm I'm glad we can report something that went well.
1: Well, you know, speaking of states, this gets back a little bit to the um, opiate business. This is from the um, fall 2016 legal advisor of the Massachusetts Medical Society's legal advisor plan. I guess they have a a plan that you can through the uh, medical society there. oh my god yes and uh, you know i read this thing and uh oh painful rick it's entitled recent legal changes for um opiate prescribing mm-hmm. and here's the first one that's a really a kicker opiate related deaths are being reported to the medical board and they are investigating any doctors who prescribed the drugs in the recent past So you die of an opiate death. They find out that you're a prescriber. Your name goes to the medical board for investigation. Yeah. And and if the patient had been come in,
0: was seen in the emergency uh, department, you gave him 10 Vicodin tablets for an obvious cause, then you become part of that chain of people who are, uh, you know, giving people opiates. And uh, this this is a mistake on the, on the uh, Massachusetts Medical Society. Well, they also,
1: in the process of doing this investigation of you, mm-hmm. uh, they want to know whether you've completed the required CME on opiate education and pain management that they, apparently you're supposed to do. Right. Well, that's state by state. Again, this Brothers is the state Mrs. Massachusetts. Right. Yeah. And they want to know whether um, the prescription awareness tool which is this drug database of you know everybody has now yeah whether you consulted it or not yeah, right uh there's a new law they said i don't know the date limiting prescriptions of opiate to seven days there are some exceptions now this is the one of seven day kind of thing right the exceptions are palliative care okay catch this acute medical conditions that's us uh, chronic pain or pain associated with cancer, you know, and, um, and the record must reflect which exception is being applied and that a non-opiate was not considered appropriate. You have to put that down. Yes. I. I <laughs> oh, God. It,
0: it'll take you forever to write these things up. Now, in truth, for emergency docs, most of us don't write for more than seven days' worth of pain medicine anyway because we want them in to see that's true, their that's doctor. True. And um, we handle acute conditions which have pain associated with them. Um, I'll tell you, though, that this this is going to be tough for some of the family practitioners, internists, people like that, who are now going to have to write a dissertation about why they didn't use a non
1: opiate medication. Two other points in this uh, these regulations. First of all, if you're going to prescribe an opiate for a minor, the physician must talk to the parents or guardians about the known risks and explain why an opiate is necessary. And number two, as of October 15th of last year, physicians must check the mass path each time a Schedule 2 or 3 drug is prescribed, including benzos and opiates. So yep. not it's not at your discretion each time. Yeah, no, I I
0: know that's the case. Rick, I think this is a train that's left the station.
1: No, I got it. Uh, I got it. Yeah.
0: I you know what I would do now is uh, anybody who had a painful condition just when they hit the door just have have somebody um attack or a somebody query the database. Now, for some states that's that isn't too hard. Uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, we're 35 miles from the Ohio border. We're 50 miles from the uh, from the Indiana border. How many state bases do you have to check? Mm-hmm. There are, I think there are 11 states that touch the state of Tennessee. Uh, <clears throat> if you've really? ever looked at them, yes, oh, it's unbelievable. Uh, so do they have to check in all the neighboring states? I see. I don't know yet. But this is becoming. Um, we're trying to kill. Uh, we're trying to kill a mosquito here with a with an elephant gun.
1: Yeah, I think that you kind of ought to use your judgment about when you should be able to go to those things, and not <clears throat> every case we're trying to like. I say the broken train, ankle, You know, you got to go to the. You might you might have faking that. Broken train
0: ankle. has left the station. You know, and and uh, I don't think we're going to stop this. Um, and it's uh, again emergency medicine always takes some blame i think that (laughs) we're the least of the problems in this
1: entire deal all right you want to get into a case or two sure well the the, uh, first case i think we have here let me see if that's correct yeah is um i borrowed a few cases from steve selps he uh, publishes these malpractice cases in the journal called Pediatric Emergency Care. Yep. Uh, he's at uh, the New Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington. He's been on and recorded with us in the past. The source document for these cases is the uh, Lewis Lasker publication, which is right in front of me that you subscribe to, Medical Malpractice Verdict Settlements and Experts to which... Yep. We quote quote, on a regular basis. So everybody's stealing from this guy, is what I'm trying to say. Well, he is the place
0: where people send their information. There's three reasons they send it to him. This is a place for lawyers to brag about how well they did in cases, either winning or losing. It's a place where they can find out the names of experts who won and who lost, so that other attorneys can find them, and lastly, this is where they see trends because things will be popular in one state or one area, which haven't been tried in other states, so uh this verdict settlements and experts has a lot of functions in the legal community,
1: not all of which we like and I see it in front of you. that little sucker's expensive, isn't it like three or four hundred bucks a year, yeah, Rick. If you're in that business, it's, 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 nothing, it's nothing. Nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. And hey, listen, why don't you do this case, this 22-year-old? Oh, this is a 22-year-old who
0: sustained a substantial laceration to the left foot. It was sutured up by the emergency doc, as most of us do. The patient sees a student health doctor uh, two days later because of significant pain, persistent oozing, and... Delayed sensation, whatever that term means. I think he's probably got a dysesthesia of some kind from this process. He was advised to go back to the ED where another, a different ER doc saw the patient and advised elevation, limited weight bearing, and a return in one to two days if there was no improvement. A tendon exam was not noted on the chart. Now Rick, if you drop something on the back of your foot and it causes a laceration, wouldn't you have them stick their toes out, bring them in, do the usual sorts of things? Okay. Over the next three weeks the pain, swelling, bleeding improved, but not the weakness. An orthopedic surgeon was consulted, did surgery, and repaired five tendons, including four or five extensors. An infection followed. There's always something else. An infection followed with multiple additional surgeries required. A medical review panel found no negligence on behalf of the two <laughs> emergency physicians. I don't know exactly how they did that,
1: but you know they did take it to trial, Rick. What well, do you think? It was, you didn't get five out of five. <laughs> he didn't miss all of them. He only <laughs> missed four out of it's five. It's hard you know? to get five out of five extensions. Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to point out here is take a look at your own own foot. There is skin and the tendons are right underneath it. There's no fat there. Right. It's it, and so if you're gonna go through the skin, you gotta be really thinking that I'm gonna get something underneath it as well. Mm-hmm. And and it that's what occurred in this case. I loved, I loved, and I put it down here in some, some detail how they wound up paying this guy. Uh, the jury unanimously disagreed with the Medical Review Board. That's a, that's a, that's a surprise. Yeah. Now, but look at, look at the award they gave him. They gave him $650,000 for past, present, and future pain and suffering. They gave him a million dollars for past, present, and future medical ang- anguish. Medical anguish. Uh, to, that, that's d- not expenses. That. That's anguish. I'm well, very, I'm very upset. I'm, I get anguish. Well,
0: I actually had a similar case in which some they gave anguish because there was an eight hour delay in in diagnosing an appendicitis. Anguish. Ang- well, what the attorney said to the jury was. He'll be afraid he's going to be malpracticed upon again for the rest of his life.
1: That was the anguish. anguish okay. Yeah, okay. So, well, this guy got a million bucks for anguish. Yep. He got a quarter of a million dollars for past medical expenses. He got a quarter of a million dollars for past, present, and future lack of enjoyment of life. Anguish and lack of enjoyment of life. Mm. Hmm. Got a million in that quarter. I want right to know there. what funky stuff he does with his feet because, you know, I've never had. I'm not done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, go ahead. Half a million for past, present, and future disability. Yep. And catch this. $750,000 for past, present, and future disfigurement. You mean he lost his foot modeling career? There it went. You know, he used to be a foot model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is they, they broke this down into six Different categories of payment. When you add all of this up, it looks like it's about over two, well over two million dollars.
0: Yes, it is. Yes, uh, you know when you look at this, you think, what What could we do to not have this happen? Well, I guess it would be nice if on the first examination uh, he'd uh, inspected to the degree he could the wound and had recorded movement of the tendons and had warned the patient there can be hidden lacerate. There can be hidden injuries here. We can't see. That's why you got to come back. You know, you always lay a little crepe. I mean, can I actually see the entire length of every tendon? Absolutely not. But you'll warn them, you know, there might be a nick there. Something may have to be done. Now, two days later, uh, they sent him back to the... He went to the health service, basically. <clears throat> they said, oh, we don't do this. Go back to the ER. Went back there, saw a different doctor. And again, now we've got a, a return visit. Somebody unhappy, and there's no examination of the motor or sensory activity yeah, is about
1: nerve and tendons? Nerve yep. and tendons. That's what isn't, it's about. Isn't that nerve and tendons come up a lot in fingers and... Feet and hands and wrists and it's all nerve and tendon. Pretty much,
0: it's nerve and tendon, and I think the basis here, it, you know, why this jury is angry. Uh, and and of course, I read this. I read this as well in uh, in in uh, verdict settlements and ju- and experts, and said, you know, uh, this is the kind of thing that lawsuits are made of, and anger is made of. That we didn't do, the basics, the stuff that freshman medical students are taught. Why I don't exactly know, but that was the problem in this case. And I'm sure uh, you know when the orthopedic surgeon did the repair, he didn't. He perhaps was not kind to our friends in the emergency department. Next
1: case I borrowed from uh, Dr. Silps. Oh, this is, is- the uh, the the young girl. Oh, yeah, You yeah. do it, yeah. All right, so this is a um, young girl who's taken to the ED two days in a row eh, eh, yep. for a viral syndrome. A rapid strep test was negative and a culture sent. On the morning after the second visit, the patient returns via ambulance with fever, delirium, and a particular rash. Ooh. She rapidly decompensates in the ED and dies. The diagnosis... Group A strep septic shock, multi-organ failure, and cardiac arrest. The parents sue for delayed diagnosis and failure to aggressively treat septic shock, including a delay in initiating antibiotics and inattention by the nursing staff. Um, This is, I think this is kind of a tough one. Uh, You know, there may be... Wait, wait, it's not tough, Rick. It's damn near impossible.
0: You and I have all been, and everybody who's practiced has seen a kid just like this kid. And on that first visit, they looked okay. I mean, I'm not a big believer in swabbing the throat and sending cultures and this sort of thing. uh, But it's how the kid looks. And if they look good, you know, what, what are the chances that you're going to do a big major workup on this child. Now, it's unfortunate that that uh, on the second visit, um, uh, the child has delirium, petechial rash. I mean, this is a full core press, but I don't notice anything anywhere else that made this child...
1: Uh, look like they had something terrible. One of the problems with these cases is that we don't have the full record. We don't really know what their vital signs were. Right, there is a lot missing from these, so that it's easy for us to be a Monday morning quarterback. We've said that before. Yep, yep.
0: And uh, and, and um, there was a se- there was a settlement in this case, and I think the settlement number does say something. Because this is the death of your kid. Settlement number here is is uh, five hundred and thirty thousand um, dollars. This almost sounds like a jury wants to award mm-hmm. the family something. Yeah. But if they'd really screwed up, if this was clear negligence, they'd have gotten more than that. I think. The plaintiff's counsel for the death of your kid wouldn't have asked for 500,000 bucks. He'd have asked for 10 million. And and, uh, so I think the award almost suggests that this family was probably very sympathetic. I mean, how can you not uh, relate to a family that's just lost a
1: child? I think on this case, it's difficult for us to criticize anything. Yes. Yes, I agree. Um, the third one that I borrowed, IV drug user presents. Well, you want to do this? Yeah, an IV drug user presents to the ED with a fever.
0: Okay, <laughs> IV drug user fever. That's an infection buried somewhere till proven otherwise. Is that a fair statement? Right. Yes. That's yes. Right. Okay. Diagnostic tests and a blood culture <laughs> are sent. The patient's discharge was sinusitis and an oral antibiotic prescription. Now, we don't know exactly why they decided they had sinusitis. Blood culture shows staph aureus, but is never reported to the ED physician, nor is the patient notified.
1: Details, details. I understand. Nobody's
0: perfect. You never ask a question you don't want to know the answer to. And I think that that is is just killer. It's awful. The patient returns 17 days later with worsening symptoms. Now, we've had a positive blood culture sitting around, and now he's worse. God, I hope on that second visit they knew what to do. The physician who saw her originally sees her again and is now aware that the patient had a positive blood culture dating from the first visit. IV antibiotics are started for approximately six hours. Uh, about approximately six hours after arrival, and we'll make a comment about that in a minute because uh, that's a little long. The patient has complicated course. Ultimately, uh, dies, leaving two dependent children. Uh, anything, anything that you like, yet, Rick? In this case. Not so far. The EP contended that he wanted to admit the patient at the first visit,
1: but she declined. Where's what, the sign out against medical advice? Exactly. No. No.
0: The chart never reflected that. That was his recollection. Now, the truth is, can you remember every everything that you said to patients a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Absolutely not. But if she declined, and I can't understand why he didn't make a note to that effect, she was awake. She was alert. She could understand what I said. I warned her about what could happen. I begged her and pleaded with her to stay. He did none of that. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing in the chart to report to support this. So, what do you think the uh, What do you think happened, Rick? One point one million. Yeah, and I th- I think when you think about it, uh, we've got two or three problems. If she didn't want to stay, write it down. Now people always say, "Well, they wouldn't sign against medical advice." Uh, you know what? There's a lot of people like that who don't sign. That doesn't mean I don't write it down. Uh, and so we need to uh, we need to keep that in mind. The other thing is. It's very hard to defend having a, why did you do the blood culture if you weren't going to do something with the blood culture? I think that to send it off and not have a system that finds that patient, I don't know what their hospital system is, but you, it's very hard to defend that in court, I think.
1: I'd have to agree with you,
0: my friend. Yep. That one's that that one's that one's not going anywhere good at this moment in time.
1: Now, do you have any cases that you'd like to I have a to bunch this?
0: of them. First case. Um, and and we talked about this one earlier, Rick, before the show, about an emergency physician who allegedly missed an x ray um of a foot and ankle. The plaintiff is a nineteen year old man. He fell from a ladder and landed on his feet. Um, So we know we have an axial loading injury. Heels and back. Heels and back, exactly. (laughs) In fact, that used to be one of my uh, questions. I have a collection of x-rays, and I'd show the uh, fracture in the calcaneus to the medical students, say, what else needs to be on the chart? Say, if the back exam isn't there... You don't understand axial loading injuries. Um, in any event, he was seen by the first emergency physician. Uh, X-ray, plain X-ray is ordered, interpreted as negative. Now, what we don't know about this case is whether what did the intervening radiologist think about it? We don't know. I mean, I assume that he thought it was negative, too. Because there's no evidence that there's a radiologist involved in the in the malpractice in this case, so the uh, the uh, patient comes back. He's back in the back in a week. Severe pain. Complained that uh, he's not getting any better. So they took another set of plain X-rays, and again, we interpret it as what, Rick? Normal. Normal. We don't have the final reading of the radiologist here, but when an MRI was ordered uh, some three weeks after that, so now we're into about a month of this, it was uh, a longitudinal fracture of the calcaneus, non-displaced longitudinal fracture of the calcaneus was diagnosed on MRI. Uh, the the <clears throat> Of course... The patient claimed he'll never be right again, and that's not totally wrong. My experience with
1: calcaneal fractures is this is a bad injury. And it said non-displaced. Maybe uh, I don't know enough about this to say, "Oh, that's uh, that's not so bad." But what do you you know? What, what, what was the outcome here? Any dollars changed hands well, here? Well, this was the state of California, which, by the way.
0: Is actually a very reasonable state in malpractice. Uh, It is uh, certainly not one of the. It's certainly not Illinois when it comes to uh, giving money away. New Jersey, New Jersey, uh, Wayne County, Michigan, uh, Dade County, Florida. It's none of those things. And uh, quite frankly, this this case, uh, they believe the the emergency doc. And uh, it was a decision, a California defense verdict, for this emergency. Whoop de do. Yeah, you know we did well, but I think when they're back in worse oh, sure. a week, why not do?
1: What would prevent you from doing the definitive study? Well, you know, I'm of the view that we need to be more aggressive at ordering MRIs. It's kind of like the philosophy is you need some kind of like a a note from God to be able to order an MRI in the ER. Right. And that uh, there's a whole line of patients going up and, you know, where is your patient going to fit? It's so easy. You just make a little space and stick your patient in there. Right. It's called the emergency department. Right. And so I basically have been pretty aggressive about Navicators. If I want mm-hmm. to know the answer, and the plain X ray is normal, and I'm still suspicious, it's not a CT. It's an MRI. Yep. It's well. What's interesting? Spine. Right? Spine is all MRI.
0: The Europeans are ahead of us on this. The Brits, particularly, say get the the most cost effective thing is to get the right answer early on, because if they're going to send people back to work, they're going to do things like that. Um, in a system where everybody pays for the healthcare um they they make it very clear that the the cheapest thing to do is get the right answer now
1: and you know the true marginal costs here are not that big a deal you want to you, you know, already have- own the machine right exactly so uh
0: so anyway we got off but i think there're still valuable lessons here for, um, for uh, other folks. All right, next. Alleged failure to identify underlying conditions causing psychosis and other symptoms um, in a patient. This is a Florida case. The, pa- the, uh, the uh, decedent, a 52-year-old woman presented to the ER in July of 2011 with an altered mental status. What does that say to you, Rick? They need what kind of exam?
1: Uh, in New Orleans? They, they,
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, and here's the problem. She was discharged to an outpatient psychiatric facility, and she died four days later. Now, Defendant's husband is not a happy camper in this case and and claimed, of course, that if they'd done a proper examination uh, and they treated this as if it was a medical problem, uh, she wouldn't have died. As part of the workup, it was determined that she died from dehydration um, um, and, and general laboratory studies were out of whack. They did not have a more specific cause. The, the, the jury agreed that it was inappropriate to send this patient home or to a psychiatric facility when what she had was altered mental status and it hadn't been worked up. But because they had no clear cause of death, uh, they, they did find in favor of the doctor in this case. Man, that's called luck. That's called <laughs> luck. I mean, I hope that guy also bought a lottery ticket that day, <laughs> because because it's it's not gonna it's not the usual situation uh, that this uh, this happens. By the way, this was not in Dade County, Florida. Uh, Dade is is the uh, hellhole for medical legal cases, and uh, the, the that is not what happened. Okay, a. A difficult case, because we see this all the time, is when EMTs have to take control of a patient. So here we are. um, The plaintiff claims alleged aggressive treatment by the EMTs caused a rotator cuff and biceps tendon injury. Now, what happened... (laughs) Was this? This is in Louisiana. Patient age um, uh, plaintiff was seventy two. Was at home when the police and paramedic arrived at her door. The plaintiff's sister had made the call, claiming the patient was suicidal. The defendant paramedics spoke to the uh, patient for about twenty minutes and decided that she could be potentially suicidal. And they were going to take her by ambulance. uh, She fought with the EMTs. Uh, They did essentially uh, restrain the patient. She was taken to the Oxnard North Shore Hospital where, and this is sort of a cheeky comment made, a five-minute psychiatric consultation revealed that she was not suicidal. Can you do that in five minutes? I
1: don't think so.
0: I don't think so either. The other thing is... Patients tell you all kinds of crap. I, I, I took away people's civil rights a bunch of times when the family told me stories that frightened the living crap out of me. For example, was Grandpa home loading his gun? Was he playing with his uh, saber collection? Uh, was he tying ropes around the uh, the rafters? I mean... Because the patient says they're not suicidal at a moment, I think you've got to look at
1: a bigger picture here. Well, I can't envision any dollars changed hands here. Well, they went after the EMT, say she wouldn't
0: have had this rotator cuff if they had just left her at home. My view of it is if they would left this person at home and she had killed herself... What leg do they have to stand on at that moment in time? Uh, and the good citizens of Louisiana actually fought uh, pretty much the same way, and this was a
1: defense verdict. Well, there is no malice here. They did their best. They didn't want to hurt the person. Um, she's physically needing to be restrained. Right. It's always a potential uh, opportunity for somebody to get injured. That's why in the ER, when you're going to restrain somebody— This is a five- or six-person job. Yes, exactly. And you don't do it without inadequate number of people. And maybe two EMTs is not enough.
0: Well, there's no question that uh, the most dangerous emergency departments are those 20,000 visit departments, one doc, three nurses, one tech. When a 220-pound biker comes in full of drugs, Uh, big hospitals handle this stuff all the time. And they've, they've got a lot of people, they, a lot of resources they can marshal. Because the way to restrain people is make it big and bulky and soft and get their extremities so that they can't take a swing at you. I mean, that's I spent a lot of my career doing that. And I did we ever hurt anybody? I mean, I don't think anybody got a rotator cuff. But we also knew you can't half-restrain. Don't threaten to restrain. If you're going to go in there, go in there with five people and be prepared to deal with what's coming up.
1: Yeah, isn't it like uh, one on each extremity and one on the
0: head? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 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 if you if you that's exactly what we do. The other thing is I specialize in the right level. <laughs> okay, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, the other thing is we put uh, masks on these people as quickly as we the could. Spitters, because we got spit on a lot of times, and uh, so a little a little uh, standard mask uh, keeps a lot of spit from out of your face and out of your eyes and that sort of thing. All right, Gregory, it's time for wine of the month. Oh well. Yeah, anything uh, for us? Well, we're doing this on the uh, on the 4th of January, on New Year's Eve, five days ago. I took my entire family, uh, son, daughters, son-in-laws, usual sorts of people. Hanger Yeah, hangar honors, well-wishers <laughs> and fun seekers who wanted dinner, um, out to dinner, and uh, spent a long time speaking with the the uh, Somalier and he couldn't agree with us more that California still as is, is back up as the wine bargain in the world. Uh, now there were he knew all about the crazy crap but he brought me a bottle of Robert Mondave which most restaurants double. That is if they bought it for 45 or 50 they charge you a hundred. And he and I had that conversation. He says, yeah, that's what we bought it for, half that. I said, what do you think? He says, this one. So we had the, the Robert Mondavi Oakville um, and a Cabernet. Does it come in a box? Yeah, it does not come in a box, and it doesn't come from Costco. But we opened that wine, and it's as good a Cabernet as I've had in five years. It was a 2010 Robert Mondavi oakville and i would recommend it to anyone at that restaurant it was 100 bucks but you go look on these little apps now that'll tell you where you can get it for how much and between 42 45 bucks fantastic wine oh there you go and i'm Here sure it was
1: a very pleasant evening for a good all. time
0: was had by yes, all exactly Particularly my children and their hangers-on because uh, they <laughs> His don't. His dad picked up the tag. <laughs> exactly
1: right. Well, Gregory, uh, that is January two thousand and seventeen. I don't know how, how long we've been doing this. I don't know. I should look it up, but it seems like an eternity. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I think
0: we may be starting our tenth season, but but uh, again. Um, we're happy to start the new year. We're very pleased and happy with all our subscribers. You send us your questions. We'll find you the answers. And, uh, or make them up. Or make them up. So this is Greg saying goodbye.
1: And Rick, talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye.